I always joke with the engineers that every line of code you write is a business decision. <laughs> this is SaaS Scaled, the podcast where data meets action with host Armand Schrocki. Each week, Armand will be sitting down with CEOs and industry leaders from the technology sector, giving you the insight to innovate without reinventing the wheel. They'll discuss challenges, best practices, and how to identify the right metrics. So if you want to get to market faster and in a way that matters, then subscribe and join us every week as we discuss SaaS scale. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curvey.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y.com. Hello, welcome to another episode of SaaS Scaled. I'm here with Blendly Hersoy with a company named Aerospike. He's the chief product officer at the company. Welcome to the podcast, Blendly. Well, thanks for having me, Armand. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you guys do at the company and the company itself and what exactly the problem that mainly you guys are focused on to solve? Sure. You know, my background is ranges from being a programmer, software engineer for, for many years, and then moving up through the ranks of engineering management, which is a different practice than actual coding, you know. It's it's more about allocation of resources against problems and and then moving back and forth between product management and engineering management, ultimately general management, you know, running a large ERP business um, at Oracle, JD Edwards. But I spent time at Novell in the early days of networking and, and figuring all that out. Um, and, and there I worked on, you know, NetWare SQL, a relational database. Um, you know, I've gone back and forth between infrastructure software, meaning databases, networking, different frameworks and such, and, and applications, you know, like ERP and, and, and having to consume infrastructure. And so seeing both sides of using and building, you know, infrastructure I think has led me to have a, a fairly unique perspective on what one wants in databases or distributed technologies. Aerospike, you know, was founded by two people, one one being a networking guy and the other being a database guy, Srini Srinivasan. One of our founders is still with us, deep roots in, in database, PhD from University of Wisconsin. And the combining of, you know, uh, networking savvy, with database algorithm understanding has really been what's made it possible for Aerospike to deliver a distributed database that I think uniquely scales and performs and is efficient. And efficient efficiency means it's efficient in the use of resources. So quite often when people move to us, they get better performance, but they use you know up to 80% fewer nodes in a cluster um, and so there's a, a cost savings, but also importantly, I think these days, a savings in energy use and in resource consumption. Okay, fantastic. Is there any particular domain that mostly is in need for this technology that you may say, you know, mostly this technology is applicable 
to this particular domain or industry, for example? Yeah, so so what, what's interesting is we started out really servicing ad tech, and that's where the need for a real-time data platform that could scale and that was efficient, right, was needed. And it was the, the need there was very, very clear. A lot of that has, has grown out from that ad tech focus to financial services, to security. And, you know, in financial services, it's payment systems, it's, you know, managing transactional systems, but also being able to handle, you know, risk analysis in some sense of real time, meaning in, in the context of a trade that someone might want to execute or a margin trade, et cetera. And also on the security side, being able to say, is this login valid, right? Is it fraud? And and to do that without friction, and the without friction is what creates the demand for it to be real time, super low latency. And, and you know, the other thing I'll say is that with our with our system, we can actually apply more data within a given time bound SLA, and wherever that matters. And, and you know, with AIML, this amounts to how many features are you going to use in your model, and that's going to mean that was, this was put best to me by one of our customers who said, you know, before Aerospike, we used to use hours of data in terms of a profile of user behavior against days of data on the side that we create our patterns and our AIML and the feature set. And now we can use weeks and weeks of data and match that against months. And what that does is give us gives us a higher fidelity model, you know, more data points and and more accuracy. And when they took Aerospike, they they kept their old stuff and then they said, here's our premium product, which they charged more for because they got more accurate results, both in terms of being able to deny service when it was fraud, but also not having false positives on it being fraud so that more business went through. So, you know, a double yield there, if you will. Yeah. Okay. makes sense. And then with regard to, for example, the kind of working that you guys have on the data side, I expect that this is mostly transactional data, but at the same time, equally, you are adding value when people wanted to get the data out on the analytical side, right? So they use the same data structure, the data engine that you provide. It can help them on both sides, getting the data in, but also getting the data out and gain insight out of the data. Yeah, and and that's insightful, Armand. That's exactly right. You know, one of the things is that we have a very balanced capability in terms of high throughput of ingestion, while at the same time supporting high read rates. Okay, and that's that's not very common to be able to do both and to sustain both. So what that means is we can be updating feature sets. We can be consuming new data points, you know, that that are used to create profiles, if you will but at the same time doing the analysis on that. And, and so there's that. And then we also replicate the data back to broader data sets, warm stores, if you will, where machine learning might go on. But you know, no longer do we have a database and the company runs on that. We have many databases and a lot of data that's in motion, that's being ingested new all the time, 
not only from internal sources, but from external sources as well. You know, that people, people acquire new data sources by the day because that's an advantage in what they, they can see and being able to apply to decisioning in, in real time. So it's both, you know, transactional data capture, but it's also the application of that data and data from other sources to make decisions within the context of any given transaction as well. Okay. And then would you say that, for example, cloud in general, I mean, it didn't happen overnight. So it's not like, you know, at one day we didn't have cloud and then we have cloud, of course, you know, during the course of years and even decades, you know, cloud has matured, has gotten better, for example, with security, you know, so with adoption, users using it with performance, with reliability, with many different aspects. But the way it is today, as we know, do you think cloud has helped what you guys do tremendously? Or even if cloud did not exist, even if majority of companies is still like 20 years ago were not using cloud, your technology would have been the same and would have had the same impact that it has today. What is the impact of cloud in what the real-time business business that you guys are doing? That's actually a great, great question. And I think that, you know, in the past, very large corporations, right, had data centers with the network bandwidth, with the availability of resources to handle things in this manner. And we still have customers like that today. Pardon the thunder, (laughs) but some thunderstorms moving through in the area, but you know, what, what's happened is a democratization of access to computing, networking, and storage resources, right? And that's what the cloud has brought. So that's led to this huge richness of new companies providing new services all the time. We, we look at markets in terms of legacy companies who are doing digital transformation and modernization and new tech companies that are challengers or disruptors, right? And those disruptors have access to the same span of resources that huge companies do because of the cloud, right? So at the same time, I think that people have learned how to use the cloud. They've learned how to isolate things with VPCs. They've learned the security models in the cloud, which are slightly different than what they are on premise. And as companies have learned that, they've understood where I want to use the cloud, where I still want to be on-prem. And there's a much more nuanced understanding of, of all of that. And so I think the cloud is, you know, another computing platform, if you will. Good point. Yeah. So what I hear from you, if I understand correctly, you say also that means that there are different shades of cloud, different shades of gray created. It's not just one cloud and non-cloud. They're also using cloud, but using it in different styles and different ways to actually create some kind of alternatives that maybe it fits better into your acceptance or your requirement from security and other aspects. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And, And it's changing all the time because you know, we work closely with Amazon, with AWS, for example, and and they're constantly working on providing new security services, new observability services, so that you can understand what's going on in all the different VPCs that you may have and in the network traffic between them. 
And so, you know, with, with those things being done by the cloud providers themselves and done by other people who are providing security services layered on top and, and you know, enterprise management services that have extended to cover your on-prem and your cloud footprint, if you will, holistically, that that's really changed the game and that's driving, you know, just further adoption and further adoption of the cloud. And then, of course, you know, especially when it comes to real-time data that, and we are talking about very real-time, it requires resources and it requires auto-scaling. It requires, you know, to have that processing power when you need to really perform that well. So it can be in a millisecond, you know, these things happen. From technology perspective, that is fantastic that you can actually auto-scale that fast and whenever you need to any level you want. But at the same time, it might be a concern. As we talked before, one of the points that rightfully you raised, you said, well, it has been a concern and it will be increasingly a concern sometimes from budgeting perspective if you don't really know how to manage it because that miracle or that magic of auto-scaling, that means that at the same time, then how do you want to predict the budget? What's your take on it? What's your kind of what what is your observation on that front that companies are doing in order to be that kind of you know fast but also at the same time everything be predictable from budgetary perspective that i know how much i'm going to pay for all of this you know performance that i'm gaining that's a really insightful question you know that that many of our customers grapple with and, and as we go into offering databases, a service we grapple with as well, right? There's a latency between the business benefit back to the customer, right? And when they might be billed for stuff. And to your question about budgets, there are new tools to help people understand the patterns. And, and, and it's no longer like, okay, we're going to buy X number of computers this year. That's what we're going to buy. It's bounded, et cetera, right? And so people try and set parameters. But the auto scaling model says, let's shape it very closely to what our expected usage is. And then when something happens, you may go up. Sometimes it's misunderstanding of new technologies. It, you know, a customer goes out and says, hey, Snowflake's really easy to, to ingest lots of data and we can do more. Let's open it up to more people. And it's taken up by more people internally than one would have ever expected. And so poof, it shoots up. It's not in budget. You know, how do people deal with that? And so tools that actually help you predict what the usage patterns are going to be and, and can model it out and, and developing policies, right, that, that manage it. You know, at first, when the first cloud came out, there were a lot of stories where people would just say, you know, the cloud's great. We've opened it up. People can use it. And then they'd spend and spend and spend and they'd say, boy, whose budget is all this in? <laughs> you know, and it's like, Nobody said anything about budget, you know. I've even been at large companies, large software companies, where individual developers said, I can't get something to test. I just use the corporate credit card. And, 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 you know, you would be surprised at how much money they can spend if you have thousands of programmers, right? And, and all of a sudden, you know, we had to say, ah, we're going we're gonna to get control of this. We're going get, to get a capture of it. We're going to start modeling what might be 
that, use it only for, you know, escaping and plan it into budgets for projects and things. So I think that, that we're all learning about that and there are new tools coming online all the time to help with that. But it's something that has to be modeled, has to be taken into account. And it's different than in the past, right? In the past, what we did was we over-provisioned and hoped we didn't run over that. <laughs> so there was a lot of waste built into the model to some extent. Now there may not be as much waste, but there's the same, you know, lack of predictability. And we have to understand where it generates revenue and where it's cost that, you know, just has to be, look, right now we can't have that expand more than this. And so I think people are learning how to do that. But it's a very dynamic environment. It has a whole different problem set in terms of managing, um, you know, P&Ls. Of course, we see a lot of move from outside the cloud to the cloud. So more companies we see moving to the cloud, but there might be also some cases that they may try the software, they may try the technology and for them, they say, hey, you know, on-premise working better for me in this particular case. You mentioned in some cases, you have seen it. It's not super common, but you have seen in some cases that people may say, you know, actually on-prem works better for me at this particular use case for this particular thing. What would be those kind of cases that people may actually choose on-prem over cloud, even if cloud today is at the best of, you know, its own? What I would say is that, you know, one thing, people are coming in, becoming increasingly sophisticated about cloud workloads, understanding the cost patterns and structures. And so the clouds really excels where there's some elasticity or you, you have a curve that goes up and down in terms of resource, resource usage. And there you can get, you know, very dramatic savings. But in a stable workload or in a workload that's growing sort of linearly and is just growing, right, and it goes, sometimes you can do better managing it yourselves. And we've seen some customers repatriate some workloads. And I emphasize some, right? Because other workloads, they go like, boy, we've got these workloads on-prem and we've got these machines sitting idle sometimes. And we try and shift things around with virtualization and everything. But, you know, having played that game myself, you strive to get to something like 80%, which means that you've got 20% waste going on continuously, right? And, and why not let that be the cloud's problem, right? So that's the kind of thing where people are understanding now there's more to the game than just move everything to the cloud. It's workload by workload, understand the profile of the resource consumption. And that even leads to decisions about which cloud to deploy on. And even by region sometimes, right? Where this cloud's better for this region, that cloud's better for that region. And sometimes it's better to build a, a out of data center just of your own. People are becoming increasingly sophisticated, primarily because the tools to monitor and manage and understand resource usage and therefore cost are getting better both by tools provided by cloud vendors, but also coming from third parties as well. Changing gears a little bit here, you have been in product management, product strategy for many years. You have experience there. We talked a little bit on that aspect, and then you mentioned that one of the common things that you see on the product management, sometimes it might be about product managers, sometimes product managers. I'm not quoting you here. I'm just rephrasing it a little bit. <laughs> but the way you said it, it's like, 
listening too much to customers rather than paying attention to market. You didn't say that. I'm saying this. But the way essentially you said it was much nicer. But can you explain a little bit about being customer-centric versus market kind of centric or market-oriented and what you have observed product managers should actually do versus some of them? So I think you have to do both, right? Like a good product manager goes after a market, okay? So you want to provide a product that meets the needs of a fairly broad constituency, okay? A number of customers and therefore a market. But you also have to have, have to build for people who are actually going to be using it. So really getting into a market also means getting with customers, getting with not just a few, but a number of them looking at as much data about the market and profiles of customers, reading as much about it, you, you know, like going into financial services here, you know, like I spent a lot of time reading and my product manager spent a lot of time reading. We hired subject matter experts in financial services, right? We spent time talking with them, you know, and then saying, oh, okay, so we've got a good sense of the problem set problem sets that are common across these. And then you can start to match up your requirements in your product against those problem sets. Some companies become, and, and the way I say it is not so much customer driven, but deal driven. We want this deal. So we're going to do these things. And they don't stop and think, are they applicable to a broader range of customers? Now, in any given situation, you might do a deal driven you know, decision around product if the deal is large enough, or if it gives you your first foothold in, in a market, right? But what you really want to do is constantly assess what's the broader applicability of everything you do, because, you know, resources are finite and you have a choice every time you apply something. You know, like I always joke with the engineers that every line of code you write is a business decision. <laughs> Correct. And you're right. And sometimes I have seen this pattern that if, for example, a company has some really, really big customers and in an imaginary situation, just imagine you have a few customers in charge of 90% of your revenue, then automatically company may gravitate toward lessening to those selected number of customers. And that makes the product rather than really market oriented or good for the market, it might be great for those selected number of customers that in long run may not serve the market, but may serve just those selected number of customers. I have seen it happening again and again. It's like, you know, whenever you get those big customers, it's a big, big kind of plus. But at the point, you need to be very cautious because if their needs are special and different and the product we are building are just working for those, then these are all big ifs. And if all of those happen, then we may, you know, lead, it may lead us to a place that we have a product for some selected customers, but not for the market. So you're absolutely right. I mean, product managers is art partially, is science partially, and it's really keeping the balance so... The point is, it's good to listen to customers, but a good number of customers that essentially can't represent the market, not few customers that may not rightfully, correctly represent the whole market. So that, that's definitely, you know, very important point. Now, when it comes to 
what you have done with regard to this product on the database part, the real-time business, going in the cloud, working with these customers, building the product management team, and now you can work with the customers in a product as technical as your product that is highly sophisticated. My guess is engineering-wise, you know, it has a lot of caveats there. How do you balance, for example, the kind of work that is being done with regard to engineering, customers, interaction, and also product management in between? How do you see the role being different than a less sophisticated product if you had? And how does it change the product management? The product management problem is always the same, which is to figure out what to build to get the most money. (laughs) Okay, that's the sort of top level thing. But what that means then is that you have to decide what to build for whom. And that means pick a market and then pick what I call canonical customers, right? And, and this all takes place within the constraints of both the, the fact of your code base, if you will. I mean, I always think of it that way, that, you know, the code base that you have, unless you're starting from zero, right? creates a world, if you will, a world of possibilities and adjacent possibilities. And, you know, you can't just jump over to some other area at will. So so you have constraints about what's possible. And that's where the creativity of understanding what problems you can address for the customers and the markets you've chosen are possible. Because I've sat in many, many meetings, as we all have in this business, right, where people bring up things that are like, it'd be wonderful to do that. And yes, there's a market for that. But it can't be done at the place you're at or be done easily off the set of technologies that you have in your portfolio. And so the game is to to identify what's possible. And, you know, there's a guy, Stuart Kaufman, who is a mathematician, right? And does a lot of work in uh, chaos theory and order. And, and, and I listened to a talk at uh, the first Java one, you know, the first Java conference, right? And he spoke there and he, he talked about the adjacent possible. He was talking about it in terms of biology, that evolution can't go anywhere. It has to go in the next space. To me, it struck me that that had a lot to do with coding you know, with, with like, with coding. And so, so I think that those constraints, you know, brought by the fact of the technologies that you have, the code that you have, even the platforms you've decided to build upon, they create that set of possibilities, you know, and then you're just working adjacencies all the time. But there's a lot of choice involved there. And you have to map that to what's possible and what will make money, <laughs> right? That's what product management is. It says, I got to understand the technology. I've got to understand what's possible for the engineers to do. I've got to understand customers and the market. And I also have to understand what's possible, right? And what's possible to do in a profitable way, <laughs> right? And so, so that's what makes it all interesting, that there are these constraints. Robert Frost said, you know, Poetry without form is like playing tennis without a net. It's great. It's a lot easier to play tennis without a net, but it's not tennis. (laughs) Very interesting. 
way of explaining it. You know, that makes perfect sense. And by the way, very simplified version of what product management is about. And that's absolutely true what you said, but it was brilliant the way you explained it and simplified it because at the end of the day, it comes down to this is what you can do technologically and this is what your software does, but this is what market wants and has the value so somebody pays for it. How do you optimize and connect? And, you know, of course, you know, the optimization is the key. So that's really what all is about. So that's great. I would like to ask you if you could also tell us about a particular book that maybe you, you know, have read and you're interested to uh, share with the audience. It's something that may not be super technical, but it's something that impacts what they do positively and has impacted, you know, your perspective. For sure, Arman. I, I think that partially because we've been partnering more with AWS, but but you know, the success of Amazon is, is sort of a shining star for what's possible, right? To, to all business people, right? One of Jeff Bezos' chief of staffs, and I, and I was looking on my bookshelf trying to find it so I get the the guy's name right. But the name of the book is Working Backwards, and Working Backwards is a a model for how Amazon operates. And they still do this, you know, this way. They go like, let's write the press release. Sometimes they say, let's write this. The, the other thing that's very interesting in that book is they don't do presentations anymore. They write the problem down. It has to be four pages or less. It has to be something that people can read within 20 minutes. You know, they come to a meeting, everybody reads, and then they discuss. Okay, and and they don't send it out ahead of time, and so so th there are many things like this that they've done. It also talks about what they mean by being customer driven, right? And and they mean customers driven plural, really. Like, and that's back to the market thing. Like, is this enough for us to make money? They have a pretty high bar on that, is what I would say. But they will go after markets and they will make multiple iterative attempts at it. But, you know, that book is is very interesting. Like I asked somebody there, like, was there any heartburn about opening up and showing people how you do business? And they, they all laughed and said, no, because people won't do it with the discipline we do. <laughs> I remember the same thing, Mike Maples, who was running all of engineering at Microsoft at one point, right? Somebody wrote a book about the internal practices of Microsoft when they were at their apex. They just ruled the technology world, right? And I said, I can't believe you guys let this book be written. And they said, nobody will do it. <laughs> nobody will do it. But I think we can all read books like that and take a lot from them and get better, right? Get better. I'll give you one other book, a book that's very orthogonal to technology in some ways, but it's by a guy named Atul Gawande. It's called Better. He's a surgeon. The book is about what it means to make progress in any scientifically based area, like medicine, technology, whatever. But it's very interesting because he just methodically goes through what it takes to be excellent, what it takes to constantly become better. And he goes through lots of use cases, all in medicine, right? But I found it something that inspired me at one point when I was just pulling my hair out, <laughs> you know, with lots of problems to go, yeah, it is possible to continually do better at what you're doing and what an organization is doing, not just a given single person. Fantastic. Great discussion. Thank you for joining us. 
and hope we can stay in touch and maybe having a chat again in the future. And thanks again for joining us today. Well, it was a pleasure, Aman. Thanks. Thank you for listening to SaaS Scaled with Arman Ishragi. For show notes and any resources mentioned in today's episode, go to sasscaled.com. If you're enjoying our show, give us a five-star review and share on LinkedIn. And be sure to subscribe for any updates on future episodes. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y dot com.